you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to John 3. If you have your Bibles open, please, uh, let's ask God's blessing on his word today. Shall we pray? Father, this is your word we have open before us. It is not the word of man, and therefore it is not open to our additions, deletions, or corrections. This is the eternal word of God. It is without error. And you have promised that the Spirit of God would be our teacher. And so we pray that ministry of God the Holy Spirit as we open the word. Pray it to each of our hearts. We'll be careful to thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to tell you a story to begin this morning about a man who was born when he was 27 years of age. At least that's what he said. Sound interesting? It did to me. Listen, it all started when he was 10 years old and had a desire to know God. Two years later, when he was 12 years of age, someone told him the way to know God was to join the church. He joined the church, walked down an aisle, was baptized, but nothing changed. He didn't know God. Three years later, as this young man developed and became aware of some drives and pressures and thoughts that he thought were obviously not very godly, he thought he'd go to another church and maybe that would help. He did that. Again, he walked down an aisle, he joined the church, and was baptized the second time. This time he thought he might be in the right place to find God. For in this church, they taught him specifically, they said, how he could come to know God. They taught him that he had to give up drinking, a habit which he had already developed, give up smoking, give up playing cards, and give up dancing. He even stopped dating. He wanted to take it a little bit further. And that seemed a rather strange thing for a 15-year-old boy to do. But he was willing to do all this because he wanted to know God. Strange thing. He still didn't know God. Two more years went by and he decided that he couldn't keep all the rules laid down by this particular church. And so he thought he'd find another church, which he did. And you know the routine. He walked down an aisle. He joined the church. He was baptized for a third time. But only a few months passed until this young man knew that he still did not know God. And then he decided his search to know God was futile. And therefore, he'd give it up. All of it. He went to a university and promptly partied himself right out of school. He joined the military and became an alcoholic. He was discharged from the military. He got married. Soon his marriage was on the rocks. He got a job and again tried to find God. It didn't work. He arrived at a philosophy which was prevalent in 
a popular song in that day, and he made that his goal. To live fast, to play hard, to die young, and to leave a good-looking corpse. Before long, this man was nothing more than a moral degenerate. Finally, one day after almost being killed, he rushed to his belongings and went looking for a testament that he had been given by the Gideons when he joined the military. And he began to read. He read in Matthew and got to the Sermon on the Mount and realized, I can't do that. He turned to Mark to find something else. Then he went to Luke. And the more he read, the more he realized he couldn't do all these things. He couldn't do any of these things. He was frustrated and completely miserable. He turned to the Gospel of John and started to read. And then he came to an interesting conversation between Jesus and a man whose name he said he wasn't sure how to pronounce. And he read about being born again. And the thought came to him, that's what I need. I was born wrong the first time, he said. I, if I could be born again, new and different a second time, it would be better. And so he got down on his knees and prayed these words. Lord, if you'll accept me like I am, I'll accept you like you are. And I'll expect from you this new birth. I take Jesus Christ by faith as my Savior. And that night, Hal Lindsey was born again. Now those are his words. This is his story. He was born again not because he tried to do things right. He was born again not because he had been baptized three times. He was born again not because he was good, for he wasn't. He was born again not because he was moral, because he wasn't. But because he realized his inability to do right in his own and trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. To me, one of the things the story illustrates is the difference between religion and regeneration. At points in his life, there was a man who had a lot of religion. I mean, wouldn't you say that about someone who'd been baptized three times? He's got a lot of religion. And if you can get a 17-year-old to be baptized three times, to give up drinking alcoholic beverages, to give up smoking, not to go to dances, and not to play cards, the world would say one of two things about him. Either he's dead, or he's got religion. This man had religion. But he was still miserable. Why? Because there's a world of difference between religion and regeneration. Religion says... By works, you can gain favor with God. Regeneration says it's an internal gift 
God gives you through faith in His Son, Jesus. Religion says, by something that I am, by something that I do, I can earn God's favor. I can achieve it. And when eternity comes along, God will allow me to get into heaven. Regeneration says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And it is through faith in the Son of God that you enter into eternal life. Religion is working hard to become somebody before God. Regeneration is giving up your works and trusting His finished work at the cross of Calvary. You see the difference? Our text this morning makes it even clearer. In John 3, we have the record of a conversation between the Lord Jesus and one of the greatest and most religious men in Jesus' day. Here we are introduced to a man by the name of Nicodemus. A man in his day, everyone assumed that he had impeccable credentials. You simply couldn't do much better. Look at what is said about him in John 3. Verse 1 tells us that he was Pharisee. I'll go back and pick up these in a moment or two. Verse 1 tells us he was Pharisee. Also from verse 1, we see that he was a ruler of the Jews. And if you let your eyes drop down to verse 10, you will find out he was a teacher in Israel. Look at those three things. A Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, and a teacher in Israel. I want you to think with me about these things for just a moment. First of all, he was a Pharisee. Let me just back up and read. Verse 1 down to verse 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came by night and said to him, that is Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This man was a Pharisee. Now what does that mean? Well, for us, it's a little bit harder to understand because we don't have that much truck with the parties of Pharisee, of Judaism. Nor do we have Pharisees today, although we may have some who do some of the similar things, but we do not have a party of Pharisees in this day. No official party. The word Pharisee comes from a word which means to be separated. The Pharisees were separatists. This group seemed to have originated sometime prior to the Maccabean Wars. They began to appear about 135 B.C. during the time when a man by the name of John Hyrcanus was the head of the Jewish people. It was a very elite group. There were only about 6,000 of them in all of Palestine. This may come as a surprise to some, but there were some good things about Pharisees. For example, they believed in the inspiration of the Old Testament. They believed in moral accountability. They believed in immortality. They believed in the resurrection of the body, which the Sadducees in that day did not. 
They believed in the existence of angels. They believed in rewards and in punishments. And they believed in the coming Messiah. They produced some men who were greatly respected in that day and whose names we note today. Gamaliel, for one. He was a Pharisee. Paul, the apostle. In his early days, he was a Pharisee. Josephus, the Jewish historian, was a Pharisee. But with the passing of time, this group became more and more strict, more and more strict and, 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 and shutting people out and demanding that this is the only way to go. They lived up not to God's laws, but to their own. And they enforced their laws on all of Judaism. Let me illustrate a couple of things here. In the Old Testament, God through Moses commanded that the Sabbath day be kept holy. In other words, no work was to be done on the Sabbath. From sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, the children of Israel were not to work. Now that seems to me to be simple and straightforward. Sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, no work. That was God's instruction to Moses. But the Pharisees weren't satisfied with that. For generations they argued and wrote voluminously about what it meant to work and what it meant not to work on the Sabbath. They defined it to an infinitesimal degree. In fact, one of their commentaries on the law, it's called the Mishnah, they wrote 24 chapters on what it meant to work, what it meant not to work on the Sabbath. They were hair splitters of all of time. Not only that, but in another one of their works called the Talmud, they devoted another 64 and one-half columns to what it meant to work on the Sabbath and what it meant not to work on the Sabbath. Some other examples of their rules and regulations. On the Sabbath, you could tie a certain kind of knot with a rope or string or whatever. You could tie a certain kind of knot, but there were a whole host of other knots you could not tie on the Sabbath because that was working. You could walk on a path on the Sabbath, but you couldn't step off and walk on the grass because in walking on the grass, you broke blades of grass. They considered that to be work. Ladies, you might be interested in this one. Pharisees said a woman should never look in a mirror on the Sabbath. You know why? Here was their reasoning. Because she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. And if she actually pulled it out, that was working on the Sabbath. Any of you ladies been working today? Yesterday, I'm sorry. Yesterday. Also, he had a sore throat. You could swallow a little vinegar to ease the pain of the sore throat, but you couldn't gargle. To gargle was work. Jesus renounced the Pharisees, for you see, they reinterpreted the law of Moses almost out of existence. They reinterpreted the law of Moses so it was no longer the law of Moses. It was theirs. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Verse 1 also tells us he was the ruler of the Jews. 
You know what that means? And means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, in our country, we have a Supreme Court. In Israel, they had a Supreme Court also, and it was called the Sanhedrin. There were only 70 in this group. So from being a member of the Pharisees of 6,000, Nicodemus is now a member of a group of 70 who ruled Israel. He was an important man. He was in an elite company. So he was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And thirdly, he was a teacher of Israel. Verse 9. I think this one is the most impressive of the three things said here about this man, Nicodemus. He was the voice of Judaism. He was in all likelihood the most sought after lecturer and speaker of that day. He was a spokesman for all of rabbinic teaching. One man went so far as to suggest that in all the years of Jesus' ministry, he never met a more prestigious, knowledgeable, and refined representative of Judaism than Nicodemus. And this, I think, explains the statement of verse 2 that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus is well known. Everyone recognized him. And he wasn't ready yet to be seen in public in the involved in serious conversation with Jesus. That would have been something that hurt his reputation with the rest of the Sanhedrin. So he went to Jesus by night. Also, that was a time of privacy. <clears throat> they wouldn't be interrupted. Candidly, I believe that Nicodemus was honest and sincere in coming to Jesus. He came as a religious man. He came seeking information. He came with respect. He addressed Jesus as rabbi. That's a courteous, that was a courteous title. And teacher. He even acknowledged that Jesus had come from God. Nicodemus had come to ask some questions. We know that because he asked question verse 4. He asked another question verse 9. I think, and I'm not alone in this, and, and there are a number of expositors who suggest that Nicodemus intended to ask a question in verse 2. At the end of verse 2, for no one can do these signs you do unless, he, unless God is with him. How therefore can we enter the kingdom of God? It's what is suggested by many Bible expositors. He was going to ask the question there, but before he could ask the question, Jesus interrupted and answered his question. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the first time in the Bible that we find the words born and again used together. Now the thought of being born into the family of God was something that was known previously. Look back at John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power or the right to become the children of God. 
even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of uh, blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. <clears throat> so the thought of being born into God's family is found elsewhere. What does that mean? To be born of God? To be part of the family of God? It means to begin with the new birth. Old birth won't satisfy. The first time we were born, we were born wrong, really. Hal Lindsey was right. From our first birth, we received physical life, but we also received from our parents the same disease that they had. That was the disease of sin. And the only cure for the disease of sin was and is to be born again. That's the only cure. There is no other cure. So the thought of being born of God is found previously. But Jesus is the first to say, you must be born again. Putting those two words together. Now what happens if a person isn't born again? Look at verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that word cannot there is an interesting word to me. It looks at the fact that man is incapable. This isn't a prohibition. It describes man's incapability. He cannot comprehend the kingdom of God. It's not unlike a person who's deaf. No one has to tell him that he cannot listen to Handel's Messiah. No prohibition is necessary. The person is incapable of listening. The same is true in verse 3. Unless a man is born again, he is incapable of seeing or apprehending the kingdom of God. Those who've never been born again are spiritually dead. Dead men cannot see or lay hold of the kingdom of God, nor can they help in their own resurrection. That's why the Spirit of God meets us where we are and sovereignly regenerates. He brings about new birth. And the first evidence of that new birth is believing. But why must a man be born again in order to see the kingdom of God? Answer, because God is holy and in him is no darkness at all. And it is utterly impossible for sinners to abide in his presence. Preacher of a number of generations past said, if a thief could get into heaven unchanged, the first thing he would do would be to pick the pockets of the angels. Men must be changed. They must be born again to get into heaven. To be born again is to have the Spirit of God give to us the life of God, to give to us divine life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. My dear friends, listen to me. Religion isn't enough. Nicodemus had religion. The man whose life I quoted a great deal from 
as I began the message. How was he? He had religion, but it wasn't enough. Religion isn't enough. Renovation won't do. Reformation is inadequate. Education will not get us into heaven. Baptism will not get us into heaven. Good works will not get us into heaven. There must be new life. We must be born again. If we're rich, it doesn't mean we've been born again. If we're poor, it doesn't mean we've been born again. If we're Presbyterians or Baptists or Methodists or Christians or whatever else, doesn't mean we've been born again. If we're deacons, it doesn't mean that we've been born again. If we're preachers, it doesn't mean that we've been born again. To be born again means that we have been given by God the Holy Spirit the very life of God. Wonderful news is that dead men can be born again. That's what Jesus was offering Nicodemus to be born again. To be born once someone has said, is to die twice. Physical death and second death. To be born twice is to die once. Maybe not at all should Jesus come. Have you been born again? Do you have religion? Or do you have regeneration? I hope that everyone in this room no matter how long you've been a member of this church or some other church, I hope you will ask yourself right now, have I been born again? Pray with me. Our Father, it is not a church. It's not any church that came up with a doctrine or a statement that says men must be born again. That the first birth was not enough. Religion won't do. Jesus made those things clear on the pages of the New Testament. I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice this morning will raise the question silently in their own hearts and in their own minds and give a very candid answer to the question, have I been born again? I pray that God the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts this day and I ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Got your Bibles put away? You know what, dear people? Somebody in this room this morning may have answered that question. I haven't been born again yet. Thought it ever occurred to you that all the hustle and bustle as soon as the preacher prays might distract somebody from answering that question. It occurs to me the Spirit of God may be dealing with somebody's heart and may be prompting that individual to trust Jesus as personal Savior right now. God is dealing with you. Do His bidding. Don't be disturbed by the shuffle and rustle of papers. Listen to what the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart.
be obedient to him. You don't have to walk an aisle. Oh, you can. It would be a blessing to the church family. But you can trust Jesus right where you sit. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Thank you, Lord, for dying for me. Right now, I'm trusting you as my personal Savior. That's what it takes. If God has spoken to your heart, be obedient to Him. If you wish to, I will meet you here and answer any questions that you might have. If you're in this place this morning and you don't have a, a church that you call home, we invite you to come if you've trusted Christ as your Savior. Link your life with us. Pray with me, please. Father, we looked at religion and redemption that we pray you will deliver us from our view of our life that we want you to bless and take us to a place and a vision to continually see your kingdom and live for your glory, not ours. We lift up the mission of the day teams for medical missions that spreads the gospel in Jamaica through tending to physical needs of clinics and home construction, but also administering to biblical needs, spiritual needs through Bible teaching, through short-term and long-term mission names. We lift up those that are recovering. And again, just take us beyond religion and continually redeem us in Christ's name.